be sure to follow us on Instagram at criminalafpod or click on the link in the episode description. Tragedy strikes in Anchorage, Alaska after an eight-year-old woman is kidnapped in 2012. When the man responsible is finally caught, it opens a web of violent crimes that span several years and thousands of miles. I'm Dave Jari. I'm Garrett Quarter, And this is Criminal as Fuck. What's good, everybody? Welcome back. I know some of you are thinking, Dave, what the hell is criminal as fuck? You're a serial holic. Well, I'll explain that in a few minutes. But first, I'd like to introduce Garrett Quarter. Nice to meet you guys. Garrett and I, uh, we've known each other since 2015. We're in the same academy class together in our job. 1503. 1503, baby. <laughs> How criminal as fuck came up that, you know, there's been, obviously, there's been a hiatus with the serial holic. You know, it started after the pandemic. We were working tons of hours, you know, away from our families. And along with that, you know, you kind of like get into a rut. And I kind of lost the oomph for the podcast. Put out a couple extra episodes, tried to get, you know, the thing going again. And it just wasn't there. So I was talking with Garrett and I'm like, hey, what if we kind of teamed up and do kind of like an interactive podcast while still keeping the serial holic stories, you know? That's how we came up with Criminal as Fuck. Now, we're also going to, like, you know, branch out where it's not just serial killers. Although I love serial killers. I love the story behind them. We all know that. I'm fascinated with them. We all know that. I want to, you know, branch out and do, like, other crimes, other murders, you know, things that, like, kind of just, like, twist your mind a little bit and and think, like, what the hell, you know? Yep. So that's where we're going to go. That's the direction we're going to go. And we're also recording this for video. It'll go on YouTube. Yeah, we'll see where this takes us. And we're still going to get, you're still going to get Dave's sexy voice on video too. You're still going to get, you're, you're still going to get your serialholic fix too for anybody who's listening. It's not just going to be us talking. Right. Things have changed a little bit. Um, if you guys want to follow our socials, you can go on Instagram, criminal as fuck pod. On uh, YouTube, it's still going to be the serialholic. Uh, Twitter is criminal AF. And TikTok, criminal underscore AF. You can also check out Criminal As Fuck subscriptions in the episode description, where you get subscriber-only content and monthly Q&As with Garrett and myself for only four ninety nine a month. How about that? Where can you find that shit? Go get it. <laughs> We're interactive, too. Yes. And if you like what you hear, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we are now on Audible. FYI. Mm, didn't know that. Yeah, so give us a give us a rating, give us a re- review there. Also, uh, if you guys have anything, questions, if you want to, you know, send something in, ask anything about the podcast, just send them through Anchor, and we will uh, play them live and answer them for you guys. I received a very nice one from Cassandra in Texas a little while back, so thank you, Cassandra. I can't respond to him, but I am responding right now, and I appreciate the message that you had left. So without further ado... We will get to the first chapter of this story. It's called Americano, Snickers, and a Cigar. Enjoy. On the blistery morning of February 2nd, 2012, a barista arrived at the Common Grounds Coffee Stand, located at 630 East Tudor Road in Anchorage, Alaska, to start their shift. Nothing appeared to be out of the ordinary at first. When she walked in, that is when things seemed to be a bit odd. The alarm wasn't set, and it just appeared that the young woman who closed the stand the night before 
didn't do their nightly cleanup duties. There were cups and cleaning towels still on the counter, and the closer's belongings were still in her cubby. There was also a note asking if she would be needed to work the coming weekend. Odd, but not concerning. Then it was business as usual, until it wasn't. News quickly spread by the afternoon that the young woman who worked the last shift the night before, 18-year-old Samantha Koenig, was reported missing by her father. Detectives went to Samantha's last known location, the Common Grounds. They asked to review the security footage from the night before, and what was revealed turned the missing person's case to a kidnapping. In the footage, you see a man walking up to the Common Ground shack wearing a mask and a hood. He approached the window shortly before 8 p.m. Samantha, restocking items and wiping down the countertops, turns to the window and is seen speaking to the man. Samantha turns away and begins to prepare a coffee. Over the next minute, Samantha seems to be conversing with the man as she goes about completing the order. She hands the man the coffee, turns briefly, looks back to the window, and is startled. She raises her hands as the man has drawn a gun off camera. Based on her actions, he instructs Samantha to turn out the lights and lock the back door. Samantha returns and stands in fear as the man drops a bag through the window. She next opens the cash register, removes all the money, and places it inside the bag. He instructs Samantha to kneel on the floor as another three minutes passed while pedestrians and other vehicles went by the vicinity of the kiosk. He enters through the window, begins rummaging around, then stands behind Samantha and restrains her wrists. He pulls Samantha up off the floor and leads her to the back of the kiosk towards the door. As she passes by the light of the cash register, you see that she is gagged as well. They exit the back door and cross the parking lot, the man holding Samantha close to him. Just before they are out of view, it appears that Samantha breaks free and tries to escape but she is quickly subdued. In a stroke of bad luck, Samantha's boyfriend, who was scheduled to pick her up at 8 p.m. and would have stopped the kidnapping, was slightly delayed at his job and missed Samantha by mere minutes. When he arrived at the common grounds, the small coffee stand appeared to be closed. He assumed that Samantha had already been picked up, so he went to her home where she lived with her father. Both Samantha's father and boyfriend tried repeatedly to get in contact with her, to no avail. Later that evening, her boyfriend received a text message from Samantha's phone, stating that she was going to spend a couple of days with her friends and asked him to tell her dad. This was out of character for Samantha, who had a strong relationship with her father. Why wouldn't she just tell her dad herself? As the night turned into the early morning hours, Samantha's boyfriend went outside and noticed a man rummaging through his truck. He yelled at the man and retreated to the house to get help. When he and Samantha's father returned, the man was gone. The next day on the second, her father contacted police to report Samantha missing. A few days had passed between Samantha being seen on CCTV at the Common Grounds and the next surveillance video, recorded by another business across the street from the kiosk. It shows Samantha and the man getting into a white Chevy truck. Finding this truck deemed to be a daunting task, as there are over 1,000 trucks in the Anchorage area that fit this description. This was the only lead detectives would have until February 24th. 
Samantha's boyfriend received a text that read, Connor Park sign, under pick of Albert, ain't she purdy? Detectives were notified of the text, and they all raced to Connor's Bog Park. They approached the signboard at the entrance and underneath a posting for a lost dog named Albert. They discovered a ransom note and a proof-of-life picture showing Samantha, her hair braided and appearing to look off in the distance. A newspaper dated February 13th was also shown. The ransom note demanded $30,000 to be deposited into Samantha's bank account. Under the FBI's advice, only a portion of the ransom was deposited and they waited for further communication and waited. A few days later, Samantha's debit card pinged and pinged again and then pinged a third time, all within the Anchorage area. Each withdrawal was the max allowed, $500, and each time, the police were dispatched to the ATMs. Surveillance from each location only showed a man in a white truck wearing a hood and a mask. Then silence. That all changed on March 7th, when the bank notified authorities that there was activity on Samantha's card. Surprisingly, this time it was 3,800 miles away in Wilcox, Arizona. The card pinged again on March 8th in New Mexico and in Texas. The last activity was on March 10th in Shepard, Texas. Each time surveillance showed the same mysterious figure, except in Texas, where they could see that the man was driving a white Ford Focus. On March 13th, 2012, a Texas Highway Patrol corporal saw the vehicle in question. He waited for the driver to make a traffic violation and then pulled him over. The driver gave him an Alaskan driver's license and he knew they had their man. Other officers showed up and they completed a probable cause search on the vehicle. Inside, clothes that matched the ATM footage were found. But what really made their hair stand up was a cell phone and ATM card belonging to Samantha Koenig. The kidnapping of Samantha Koenig was just the beginning for her family and friends throughout Anchorage, Alaska, because what is discovered over the following months will tell a much more terrifying story than ever expected. A story that goes back several years and crosses thousands of miles. Stories of arson, armed robbery, rape, and murder. Specifically what happened to Samantha and of a couple who disappeared in Vermont, all told by Samantha's kidnapper himself, a man by the name of Israel Keys. All right, great first story by Dave Jari there. Um, Israel Keys, huh? Uh, yeah, man. I think he's, uh, I honestly think this is a great first story for this podcast only because, I mean, where you're, like, like you said, where we're trying to go from here. Yeah. Not only is you got the serial killer-esque murderer. You have robber. You have uh, hostage yeah. taker. Like, he, he's everything. He fits the entire <laughs> umbrella of a true criminal. First thing that blew my mind was that the her co-worker comes in after work after an overnight shift and realizes nothing's done. Her belongings are in her cubby. The, like, it... And it was just business as usual. She just started her day. Like, nothing, right. like, not even call somebody like, hey, was everything okay? I, maybe some people are like that. I know I would have been like, something's <laughs> not right. And then as far as her dad coming to get or her boyfriend coming to get her, and he was just like, oh, guess she would have, uh, guess she got a ride home. At, at first, I was like, no, no way. That's weird. But yeah. I could totally see, like, if my wife was leaving for work and I came and picked her up and she wasn't 
you know, if she wasn't there, I could have saw her getting a friend, like a, a ride home from a coworker or whatever. Right. Or maybe maybe the shop closed early or something. You know, yeah. And, um, but I think at that point I'd be on the phone. Yeah, I'd definitely. Like, I wouldn't yeah. have just drove home. I would have, but I mean, Anchorage is a little, you yeah. know, ring a ding, 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 yeah. ding, ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows? Yeah. I'd be like, I uh, have a track phone still, you know what I mean? I'm not yeah. using my minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it's 2012. Yeah. I know, but they lived in 85. Yeah. Uh, second of that. So he gets home with the, with dad. The, the truck was a red flag for me too. Like, yeah. I think that's when they realized something was off because like all these things don't just happen in one night. And I think that's why they started reporting them after. And I, I don't remember if, if you said in the story, but uh, was were the dad and the boyfriend ever suspects? I don't think you said. Uh, yeah, actually, from uh, her disappearance on the second till uh, they got the the tip for the ransom note on the twenty fourth, the father and the and the boyfriend were primary suspects. <clears throat> Which, well, I mean, look at the percentage of actual a family member, right? Yeah, yeah, you always look at the family. Yeah, but uh, first, but I guess there was like a some sort of a drug business going on. Oh, they were small-time yeah. drug dealers. Yeah. The cops probably already know that family, too. Right. That's how it is, especially with, like, a small town like that. Yeah, yeah. So, like, for the, you know, for the first couple of weeks, you know, they're tracking down leads. They're speaking to all these people who are involved, you know, who have connections with the drug trade and Anchorage. And, and they're thinking that Samantha's kidnapping or disappearance was tied to, to drugs. Like the father or the boyfriend owed money. Yeah. And they're like, all right, well, we're keeping your daughter until yeah, you pay it, us back. It fits the MO, hostage. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it wasn't until the 24th when they got the, the text for the ransom note where they kind of backed off. And that's that. a pretty big gap, too. So, I mean, yeah. obviously, we don't know the whole story yet, but right. we'll get there eventually. Um, and another thing, too, is 20, it's 2012. Why? Like, I sometimes I don't understand criminal behavior at all because why would you ping, why would you use the debit card knowing damn well that there's tracking? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, you're just, just throw the card away. I don't know if there's a possession <laughs> thing that he fell over it, you know, like there's right. always these weird, you know. Yeah. Well, this is like the first time where he's actually done this. Like he, he never, he tries to stay away from home with all of his, his activity. This is the first time that he's took taken somebody's ATM card and, and used it for ransom. After he was caught, you know, he basically said, you know, I got lazy. I got lazy. He probably, and, he probably needed the cash deal. Right. Chapter two is going to be more his side of I'm, of I'm excited. I want to hear it. All Let's right. get into it. Here we go. Israel Keyes was now in custody. After some deliberation between authorities and Keyes' attorneys, he agreed to tell the authorities about the night Samantha was kidnapped but he had demands. He wouldn't speak until he had an Americano coffee, a peanut butter Snickers, and a cigar. As we tell his version of events, keep in mind, we will most likely never know the full extent of Samantha's suffering that night, as the complete information of her ordeal has been heavily redacted, but the words torture and necrophilia have been whispered. Keyes claims that in the days leading up to Samantha's kidnapping, he scouted several locations to commit his crime, including other common grounds locations. He decided on the East Tudor Road location because it was open later than the others, and although the location was on an active street, a recent snowfall had occurred, and the snowbanks were high enough to block the view from the road. He states that he didn't know who she was prior to the robbery and kidnapping, and that he wasn't even sure he would go along with it until he got to the window and saw that she was alone. 
After Keys kidnapped Samantha, she briefly broke away. Keys tackled her to the ground and held the barrel of a 22 pistol to her side, telling her to cooperate because he will kill her, and the 22 makes very little noise. They walked across the street where his truck was parked in a shopping center. There was another potential problem when they arrived. There was a group of people hanging out by a car parked just in front of them. Keys pushed the barrel of the 22 pistol deeper into Samantha's side and again said he would kill her if she drew attention. He told her to act drunk so it wouldn't raise suspicions as to why he was holding her so close. Once in the truck, they drove off. He explained to her that she was being held for ransom and if she went along with his demands, she would be returned to her family unharmed. They drove around town to pass the time because Keys was planning on bringing Samantha back to his home where his girlfriend and daughter were still awake. At one point during the drive, they were stopped at a red light when a police car pulled up to the passenger side of the truck. Keys reminded her of his previous threats and advised her not to make a scene. Shortly after, the police car drove away. Keys realized that Samantha did not have her cell phone. He needed it to carry out his plan. Samantha said that she left it back at the coffee stand. They drove back to the common grounds, where he bound her inside the truck and went inside to retrieve it. Keys drove her out a little more before he sent the text message to Samantha's boyfriend, then removed the battery. He asked her where her debit card was. Samantha explained that she and her boyfriend share an account, and he had the card inside his truck. She told him where her house was and the passcode to her card. At this time, it was late enough in the evening where Keys' girlfriend and daughter would be sleeping. They went to his house and he brought Samantha to a shed. He bound her to a wall in the shed and told her not to make any noise or try to escape. He had a police scanner and would know if the police were called. He turned his radio up to drown out any noise and left for Samantha's house. Keys was inside her boyfriend's truck when he came outside and spotted him. He was able to retrieve the car and leave the area before anyone came back. Keys then went to a bank to make sure that Samantha gave him the correct passcode and returned to his house. Upon his return, he raped and suffocated Samantha and stuffed her under a tarp inside the shed. Keys then went inside the house where he showered and woke up his daughter as they were leaving for a cruise that day. Samantha's body remained in the shed in sub-zero temperatures until his return on February 17th. Keys went into the shed and thawed Samantha's body with a hairdryer. He then washed her up, braided her hair like he did to his daughter's, applied makeup to her face, and sewed Samantha's eyelids open with fishing line. He held up a newspaper from February 13th and took the photo. After he posted a ransom note and proof of life at Connors Bog Park and text Samantha's boyfriend, Keys returned to the shed and dismembered her body. He gathered his fishing gear and drove her remains to Matanuska Lake. Keys was ice fishing as he systematically dumped Samantha's body parts into the fishing hole. When he returned home, he cooked the fish that he had caught for his girlfriend and daughter. On March 6, Keys took a flight to Las Vegas, Nevada and rented a car for a trip to Texas for his sister's wedding. During this travel from Las Vegas is when Keys used Samantha's ATM card and led to his eventual arrest on March 13th. After several hours of interrogation, Keys told authorities where they could find Samantha's remains. This is the Channel 2 News Late Edition. 
Good evening, everyone. The massive search for missing barista Samantha Koenig is over, but it's not the news family and friends were hoping for. Anchorage police announced today they found a body they believe to be Samantha Koenig's in Matanuska Lake out in the valley. After his confession and more deliberation, Keyes shocked investigators by admitting that Samantha was not his first victim. We'd like to control things. We'd like to control things as quietly as possible. We don't want FBI to study you. I don't want any of that shit. All I want is for this to sort of end. I think I, like I told you the first time, oh, let's, let's let it end for as many people as possible, and then you control. All right. Um, I'll give you two bodies and a name. And, um, but I'm not going to give you the rest. I'll, I'll give, that's all I'll give you today is two bodies and uh, a name. Last name, Courier, C-U-R-R-I-E-R. So that was, uh, that was a lot to take in. Um, I'll give you two bodies. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I didn't include in here, but I want to note, is that when uh, Keys returned from the cruise with his daughter, uh, he drove from Louisiana to Texas, where he dropped off his daughter to his mother, and he proceeded to set a fire in Alato, Texas. And uh, he was going to rob a bank there, but it didn't really... Arson, so we're just adding yeah. arson, too. You yeah, know, like, like... Fuck it, let's just <laughs> create destruction wherever we go. Wild. Um, he was going to rob a, a bank there as well, but he didn't feel right about it. So uh, he went to Azle, Texas, where he did commit an armed robbery of a bank. And it's also believed that Keyes may have committed another murder during this trip. Because uh, uh, a man went missing in this area. While he was there. While he was there. And it's safe to say it was probably... Yeah. Uh, well, we got to start off with the obvious thing in the room is how you you kill a human being, you kill a girl, wrap her in a tarp and put her in your shed, and then you go enjoy bottomless margaritas on a cruise ship. Like, <laughs> what? Yeah. What? Yeah. That just shows you, like, the sociopathic tendencies of that. God, right. Yeah, man. Um, I love, absolutely love the fact that he demanded a, a, a Americano coffee, a peanut butter Snickers, and a cigar. At, first off. You should automatically know this guy's guilty. Who likes right. peanut butter Snickers? Yeah. I mean, that, that's your red flag right there. All right, this guy's right. a serial killer. Because yeah. if you like peanut butter Snickers, I, I, don't know. I don't know. What the hell are you talking about? I know. But yeah, that's that's hilarious that he's making demands in front of detectives. Right. Like, what? The, I mean, obviously, stalking behavior right off the rip. He He's watching, you know, watching this, this girl and a barista thing. Uh, right. Yeah, he was doing that for, for a few days. So it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily her that he was looking for it was he just wanted to yeah. do it so yeah. it could have been her it could have been sally it could have been another woman he he just needed his his fix to kill somebody yeah it, it makes sense why she didn't try to get away in front of the group of people uh that and she acted drunk or however uh she he made whatever he told her to do um because yeah. at that point he could still do something to her but i feel like her golden moment to get away was the cop and I know everybody. I know everybody's like, "Oh, I would have did this in this situation." You never, you never have a gun to your head, so you don't know right. how you would react. Like it gives it a ultimatum at that time. If you jump out of the car and there's a cop right next to you, but he's gonna shoot you, and then, and then his whole, you know, he would just drive away. So right. I, I just, it sucks to know that she had a golden moment. And yeah, she didn't, she didn't take it. She was too scared. I know. When I was when I was doing this this uh, chapter, I was thinking thinking in my head, I try to put myself in that situation. And, and you know, you brought up some good points. You know, like what's he gonna do if he did try to escape? Yeah, you know cops are right there yeah. you know and yeah i would probably get shot you, but, but 
I mean, when have you ever heard of a story of you making it out of that? You know, yeah. what I mean? that situation. But I don't know. I I, I would probably do it. Oh, like I would have jumped. I would've, yeah. Right there when I saw a police officer. I would have started banging. If you're gonna window, shoot me, yeah. shoot me in front of a cop then. Right. And because you know what I mean. But I mean, you know, she's 18. She's scared. Oh yeah, you know, sure. Yeah. He's got this gun, you know, to her, everything. Uh, and at that point, she thinks it's just a hostage negotiation. But I think any 18-year-old girl who gets abducted from her job never think it's just a hostage negotiation. Like, yeah. another crazy risky behavior was him going back to Samantha's house to get the debit card. I know I, that was part of his plan, but at that point, right. you're you're risking so much. I, I feel like as smarty as he is, I mean, obviously later down, we're going to find out more information about all, like, the bank robberies and stuff that he did. But right. as intelligent he was to not get caught he also did really risky uh really risky things like like at this point he's becoming unraveled yeah because he's he's doing a lot of shit he's never done before yeah he's like you know? he's he's put, sticking his toes in the right. deep end you know yeah. What I mean? he's, yeah exactly and, and then well i mean you can transition to that right into the fact that he that's his was, was this his first murder no this is his last ah Okay, so I, I I just how allegedly his last. Do you have the stomach to sew somebody's eyes open? Uh, no, I, I don't think no. I, that's that's a, such a wild thing to hear. Um, like I could I can watch things on TV all day long. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, but to actually do it, like I can't. I get I get yeah. freaked out when I see a needle go by an eye. Like every yeah. time you watch those eye surgeries and. Uh, yeah. Like I know a lot of people are probably going to comment and, and make fun of me, but I I can't even clean a fish. <laughs> Oh no, I could do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, I mean, I could do it. It's just, it's just like, oh, yeah, you know. Yeah, you just, yeah. But to like have a dead body, to thaw it out, to put makeup on, dress her, do her hair, and then take fishing line and sew Ooh. her eyelids open. Oh. And, and speaking of fish, we go right into him just yeah. hanging out, having a probably having a cold. Uh, oh, well, what are they drinking in Alaska? Probably Coors Light or something yeah. like that. Having a cold, a nice Coors Light. No offense to I, Alaskans. <laughs> I'll let him come at me. I don't care. <laughs> and then you go and ice fish yeah. and just slowly dump chunks of body parts down the hole. Like what? What's yeah. going through that man's mind as he's uh, just hanging out, uh, radio no, on, yeah. beer in hand, craziness, catching fish while he's and dumping body parts in there and brings then he, back the, the fish to cook for his family. Yeah. Here you go, honey. Enjoy the fish. <laughs> Absolutely crazy. Yeah, that's nuts. Um, and then this is the first time we hear the detective. Is that the lead detective? Uh, that is the uh, prosecutor. Okay. Great sense of calm trying to, like, to, like soothe him into a, a sense of calm for, uh, you know, like, hey, we're, we're not going to make this a big deal. We just yeah. want to know. We just want it to end. Instantly starts. And it, it, it works because he instantly says, sorry, I'll get, hey, I'll give you two bodies. I mean, I can't wait for part three now at this yeah. point. I, I'm invested. All right. <laughs> I got to hear it. Let's do it. understand how Israel Keyes got to this point, we need to look into his past. Keyes was born on January 7, 1978 in Cove, Utah. He was the second of ten children born to Heidi and John Keyes. His parents were Mormons who had a mistrust of the government, modern medicine, and as a result of this mistrust, homeschooled all of their children. They lived off the grid. Isolated from the modern world, they had no electricity or running water. When Keyes was five, his parents left the Mormon faith and moved the family to Washington State, where they joined a church that was based on white supremacist ideology. As Keyes grew older, he developed a fascination with guns and hunting, who would often steal guns from neighbors. 
In his teen years, he moved from hunting animals to torturing them. He didn't realize his sadistic thoughts were any different from others who shared the same upbringing. I knew since I was 14 that there was there were things that um, that I thought were normal and that were okay that nobody else seems to think are normal and okay. So, um, so that's when I just started being a loner, I guess. Just, uh, I got in trouble a few times around that age. People found out about some of the stuff I did, like my parents and parents of other kids who would hang out with me, they would find out about some of the stuff I did and, um, and that's when I just started doing stuff by myself pretty much exclusively. Keeping it secret to yourself. Yeah, I never really... There was one, there was one kid uh, that I grew up with and we used to break in houses together and mostly like kid stuff. And, uh, but then uh, there was a time when I, uh, I think I shot, I shot something. I think, I think it was a dog or a cat or something. And that was too much for him. He couldn't handle it. And so after that, I, I wouldn't do anything illegal, I guess you could say, with him. But before that, my parents, I used to carry a pistol all the time from the time I was about 14. And I mean, by the time I was 14, I was basically the same size I am now. I didn't really look 14, and so I could get away with, like, the houses, the guns I took from houses I broke into, I could get away with selling them, you know, without anybody knowing about it, without my parents knowing about it, and so I had a lot of guns, and I would always carry a gun, and uh, when I was 14, uh, there were some friends staying with us, and there was a cat of ours that was always getting into the trash, it was my sister's cat, and I told her at the time, I was like, if that cat gets into the trash again, I'm going to kill it, and so uh, there was this kid, and some of the other some of his, I think maybe one of my sisters and one of his sisters, we all went up into the woods and I had the cat with me. Took a piece of parachute cord and uh, tied it to this tree. Parachute cord was about 10 feet long and had a 22 revolver with me. I shot it in the stomach and it ran around and around the tree and then like, crashed into the tree and then started... Uh, started vomiting and as soon as that like for me I didn't really react I mean I actually kind of laughed a little I think because of the way it was running around the tree but then I looked over at everybody else and the kid who was about my age was with me he was he was throwing up like he was like really I don't know (laughs) traumatized I guess you would say and he told he told his dad about it and then of course his dad talked to my parents about it and that was that was pretty much the last time anybody went in the woods with me. <laughs> Around the age of 18, it is believed Keyes committed his first violent crime. He kidnapped a 14 or 15-year-old girl from her group on the Deschutes River in Oregon. He brought her to an outbuilding where he raped her and planned on killing her. Yet the young girl was calm and talked to him, humanizing herself and cooling any urge he had to kill. He let the girl go, but later swore he would never let anyone live again. Keyes is also believed to be involved in the disappearance and murder of a 12-year-old girl who disappeared on March 3, 1996, in Colville, Washington. Keyes denied this, but he was living in the area at the time, and a potential witness claims they saw Keyes speaking with the girl. 
His family moved to Maine where Keyes joined the army after having a fallout with his family, but he renounced Christianity and told them he was an atheist. He was stationed in Fort Lewis, Washington, Fort Hood in Texas, and Egypt before leaving the service in 2001. It was during this time that Keyes murdered his first victims. No specifics were given, but Keyes said it was a couple in Washington State, and these murders are still an open case. Soon after these murders, Keyes moved to Nia Bay, Washington, where he worked for the Parks and Rec Department, and he met a native woman from the Macaw tribe. Together, they had a daughter. In 2006, Keyes claimed to have murdered two more victims. These also remain unsolved. By 2007, Keyes met another woman named Kimberly and moved to Alaska with her and his daughter. This is the same year he began making several trips around the country. It is believed it was during this time that he would hide kill kits, which he called buried treasure, in various locations throughout the United States. During these trips, he would also commit arson and rob banks, which funded his travel expenses. He paid for everything in cash, and he picked up items he needed for his buried treasures through home robberies. I know in one of our uh, conversations you made uh, a comment about how people like buried treasure, and yeah. somebody somebody might find one of those someday and think it's their lucky day, and they hit the yeah. mother of those. It would be their lucky day. What it, what's in it? Well, different things, but bank money. In, in it's some not. Of it's nothing that will get them into trouble. So no loaded guns. No, I don't. I don't bury them loaded. I don't even think I usually bury them with the magazines loaded. I did that once, and then the, the springs were all screwed up after that. So. We like buried treasures also. We kind of had fun with it, so we were looking for something else to do with just uh, kind of off task. I mean, it's not giving up much, but it's something for us to do. If you told us that once before, everybody likes a buried treasure. They do. Why well, I started burying stuff. When I was a kid, I always used to dream that I'd find buried treasure, and I figured, well, if I can't find it, I might as well create it. What about outside of Anchorage? Do you have other? Do you have stuff like this outside of Anchorage anywhere else in Alaska? Oh, give us something to do. <laughs> you guys have lots. To do. <laughs> True, but this we get this to get out. This is a little more fun, actually. <laughs> we just want to get out in the out in the woods. Um, the weather's so nice up here. We like to spend time outside. Yeah, it is. And we should all take a field trip. <laughs> <laughs> Although the mosquitoes were kind of bad. No, I. I Stuff like that, I normally don't. I, I only left that stuff there because I was planning on using it eventually. I just, uh, you just wanted to clean that? Yeah. <laughs> An environmental thing? Yeah. Does that mean you don't want to give up the bucket in Texas? <laughs> no. Well, if I get close to where it's at, would you? There's not a tracking device on it. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't sound like you need that. You're able to... Uh, no, I have a pretty good memory. I can play a pretty good cache places. I have a good memory when I need to. If we came close to where one was, would you tell us? I don't I don't know what you mean. Like if we were able to tell you an area that we're pretty sure there's one in, would you tell us? Well, I assume you know I've been kind of all over the place when I do go places. I don't know what you consider close, like state. No, no, no. I mean, just deducting where things, especially just in Texas, because we have a little more information on specifically where you were at in Texas through cell phone towers and those kind of things. 
like when you left to Dallas to drive to Houston after the bank in Nazelle, you didn't drive 45 straight to Houston. And you had to do something with that money from Nazelle, because when you came back, you had the money with you, so you picked it up down there. Didn't have it in your suitcase and get all moldy and wet. Oh, that's, that was just the small bills. So the 20s are still in a bucket there. <laughs> On that route well, from small bills are a nuisance. <laughs> People nervous when you pull out a huge lot of small bills. And you didn't leave it in the Dallas area because you weren't planning on going back there. You knew your mom was going to be going down to Wells. No, the money was moldy because it wasn't. I didn't even know if I was going to go back to get it. I just, I just buried it and figured now if I make it back, I'll get it. If I don't, there's only a few hundred bucks I think. So. So you've only got a buried treasure of a few hundred bucks that somebody might find there. <laughs> what? In Texas? Mm-hmm. No, I, I'm saying the money that was it was buried right by the airport just because I didn't want to risk TSA finding it in my carry-on and asking questions. During a trip to the East Coast in April 2009, Keys allegedly kidnapped and murdered a man before robbing the community bank in Tupper Lake, New York. Do you ever get close to being caught doing any of those? Any arsons or any bank robberies? So. Which uh, arson or bank robbery or bank robbery? I think I got pretty close one time. Makes you think that. Actually, it was it was that one that that you guys know about now. That one in New York, um, in Tupper Lake. Yeah, there was. Uh, I was leaving. And there was a car that passed me, and I knew it was a detective or somebody because they had a they had a visor light or something, um, some kind of light. I knew it was a cop of some kind anyway, and uh, it wasn't like an official patrol car, but I think I think there were a couple people in it, and uh, it was windy roads going through the mountains and stuff, and kind of on a hunch, I was I was thinking, well. Because this was quite a while after the robbery, I was quite a ways from the scene. I was thinking, well, just just in case they, in case they have a vehicle description or something, I better pull off the road. And there was a campground, and I pulled off really quick and kind of, kind of backed into some trees and uh, and just sat there for a while and was counting money. And I think I saw uh, the same car go back the other way, like it might have been looking for me. So. I don't know if they. I don't even know if it was the same car. It went by really fast, but it looked like it could have been the same car. Like fast, like it was trying to catch up to you. Yeah. I don't know for sure if they were, but all the same, I think I sat there for quite a while. Sat there for several hours. And figured by then everybody who was going to be at the scene was going to be there. Like I remember reading about it a few days later. They that one really freaked them out because it was such a small town. They like locked all the schools and everything and had SWAT teams patrolling the streets or whatever. And, but I, yeah, that was, I was thinking at the time, I was like, I'm just going to hang out at this campground and count money and stuff. And he stops by, I'll just act like I'm fishing. And Did you have a fishing pole? I think I did on that trip. <laughs> I don't think I had a license, though. This was believed to be a busy trip for Keys. In addition to the bank robbery and alleged murder of a man, he is suspected of kidnapping and murdering a woman by the name of Deborah Felbin, 
who was last seen alive on April 8th, 2009, in New Jersey. Keyes denied having any connection to Deborah's disappearance, but a search of his home computer showed that Keyes had searched her name. Once confronted with this information, Keyes became withdrawn and refused to discuss it any further. This is also the time he buried one of his kill kits near Essex, Vermont. As we will soon discuss, this will play a pivotal role in the next part of the story. So I just want to add a little bit to the uh, the part about the 12-year-old. Uh, her name was Julie Harris when she disappeared from uh, Colville, Washington in 96. She was a double amputee. She had prosthetic feet. She had uh, special needs. Those feet were found a month after her disappearance. Israel Keys was 18 years old at the time, and he lived in the area. I guess he was witness talking to her by a pool, which you know connects him that he knew who she was. But the thing to point out here is that although he never admitted to it, he did state that after the birth of his daughter, he would never kill a child. Now, his daughter was born born later. Mm-hmm. and that was, uh, nine, that was 97. Yeah, Julie, was, Julie uh, was, was killed in 96. So it's possible. And I've always wondered about that. Like, what makes a serial killer choose between a lover and a victim? You know right. what I mean? Like, he got married. He met a girl, got married. Yeah. Had a daughter with someone, had a loving relationship, obviously, at some point. Yeah. Like, what? Like, I, I'll never understand that. Yeah, I, I don't get it. Because, you know, there's a lot of killers out there that that maintain somewhat of a normal lifestyle. Yeah. You know, like BTK. Yeah. BTK was married God knows how many years. Maintained that, had kids, was the president of his church. Yeah. And he's going around whacking off to strangling people. You know what I mean? <laughs> A little bit of, like, background on him, though, was nice for, for this, because Israel Keys, the second of ten children living in the woods, isolated from the world, I mean, I don't know personally, but it sounds like he didn't get a lot of love at that point. You know what I mean? Like, when you split ten kids, you're not giving the affection that you need, like a child right. needs. And then, yeah. especially isolated in the world, that means he's hunting, He's 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 got to grow up pretty fast. I mean, especially raised Mormon. Having ten kids, I mean, probably by, like, the fifth or sixth kid. The first five are. <laughs> hey, yeah. go help. Yeah. Go, like, <laughs> yeah. go get, pick something up. There's yeah, no, you don't have a job no yet. Coddling. There's no <laughs> coddling. There's no loving. There's yeah. no. Yeah. He was probably thrown. I mean, it seems like he had a rough childhood. Right. Just, just off the little information we know. And torturing animals, obviously, clear sign right. of a serial killer. Um, the arsons. Loving the fact that the cat was running around the tree. He's laughing about it yeah. in that interview. Yeah. Laughing. Like, huh, yeah. I guess the guy didn't have a, st- a stomach for it. Like, <laughs> his friend, like, basically calling his friend a bitch for doing that. Right, right. It's- yeah, so it was around that time where he was just like, maybe uh, maybe this isn't normal behavior. Yeah. Maybe I should, like, kind of take a step back and yeah. not share these feelings. And Yeah, him realizing, like, oh, maybe I don't do this in front of people. Yeah. Like, figuring out, like, another cool thing is great resolve for that 14-year-old girl. To yeah. somehow her flight and fight or flight kicks in and right. she convinces him not to kill him just off of you know what I mean right like I, that's that's amazing story. Made, made him actually like feel bad yeah you know remorse I mean? it, it, you and I think people do that like um without even realizing it you right know what I mean how mm-hmm. that kicks in that's a cool uh the obsession with buried treasure what was you know he grew up poor no running water no electricity you know you kind of like have these fascinations as a kid to find the treasure at the end of the rainbow or, or strike gold strike gold or whatever you know yeah like he says I could I always dreamed about finding buried treasure and since I couldn't find it 
I would, yeah. Might as well just create it. He almost liked leaving things behind for people, too. Right. Which can transition right into killing. You yeah. know what I mean? Why he, you know, started doing it. It's part of the thrill, I guess. Yeah, there's, there's got to be, I mean, there's got to be some sort of, like, like, if you're a therapist or whatever, you, you got to be able to unpack that because there's right. something something associated with uh, killing in that. He, he's like, he's, he's a, oof, he's strange. He's not like your typical serial killer where they have, like, an M.O. where they... Yeah. You know, they have like, a, a certain type or, or whatever. Yeah, they're going after a pretty girl. It doesn't matter. Or, or like, they have, you know, blonde-haired girls between the ages of whatever. Ted Bundy was, yeah. you know what I mean? Or, or uh, Michael Ross, those yeah. guys. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he's just like, I'm going to I'm gonna burn shit. I'm going to rob shit. Yeah. I'm going to kill shit. Just, just a menace just to whatever. society. Men, women, older, younger. Yeah. Just whenever their urge kicked in, he's just like, all right. And uh, the the detectives too were like I, I'm still impressed with the way the detectives handle that. Like to leave everything outside of the interrogation room and just pretend like we have remorse for this man. Right. And pretend that uh, like they'll do anything to get the answers. They'll laugh with them, joke. Yeah. That's such an amazing job. Yeah. I think it would be a really cool job to to get inside those people's heads. And there was like there's a couple other clips where uh, where they're trying to get information out of them. They're like, oh, you you know, you want a cigar? You want another snicker? You know what I mean? Like, they're, they're holding these little things over his head. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you know, give us a little something and we'll give you a little something. Yep. But that's the whole thing with 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 Keys is that, you know, he he knew he was caught red-handed with Samantha, spilled his guts with that. He's He basically told them in the beginning, I will tell you everything you need to know about everything that I've done. I want, in return, a quick trial the death penalty and I want as much information kept private as possible because you know he has his daughter yeah he doesn't want he doesn't want all that information her growing up with you know all the specifics of oh, my dad was a monster right which so, go it's, it's wild you love some, something so much you yeah. love, he obviously loved his daughter if that was a, a disassociation from a, a yeah. normal person to a family member where, what, where does that come from yeah uh, he's Mr. Worldwide at this point. He's like a white trash pit bull. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like he's, he's, he's up in Essex, Vermont, or where, uh, Alaska. He, he's yeah. Mr. Worldwide. Texas, he's Las just, Vegas, California, Florida. Do you, do you think he killed Deborah uh, Feldman? I mean, becoming withdrawn from the investigation seems weird to me. That's Well, that's what I'm saying is because he only wanted X amount of information to be put out. Him talking about... The couriers, who we'll talk about next, was kind of like a test. I'll give you this information on the couriers, and I want to see what type of information gets put out to the public. Like, if you're going to keep your word that this is going to stay redacted and not public, then I will give you more. When they started talking about Deborah Feldman, like, he wasn't satisfied with how much information was being withheld, you know? Like, he wanted to see, give it more time to see what happens, you know? Yeah. But as far as uh, killing her, he piped up. As soon as they brought up her name, he was like, nope, nope, I didn't kill her, nope. And they're like, well, we found information on your laptop that you searched her name numerous times. Like, how would somebody in Alaska know anything about a woman in New Jersey going missing? Yeah, because wouldn't, I mean? that wouldn't be national news right? at that situation. Like, right. How many people go missing? You never hear about it. Yeah. You know what that's, I mean? That so, is, yeah, that's true. So why would he be searching? searching her her name and it's because he's trying to find out if she's been found what are they talking about yeah, what are they out. you know what i mean yeah he's checking out and um so yeah i think he 100 percent murdered her this next chapter is going to be predominantly keys talking about the couriers and uh yeah it's pretty pretty intense
2009 to 2011, Keyes made numerous trips throughout the country, from California to Nevada to Florida and to Maine. One trip he took on June 2nd, 2011, will bring us to his next known murders. On this date, he flew from Anchorage to Chicago and picked up a rental car, which is common on his trips as he rarely flew directly to his destination and opted to drive the rest of the way. He arrived in Essex, Vermont a few days later. For Bill and Lorraine Courier, Israel's visit to their community will turn to tragedy. I will let Keyes tell you the rest of the story. So I was doing a lot of driving around and I was looking for churches, houses, and um, I was in the motel that I had stayed at a couple other times, I think. and. Um, and I was also in that area because I wanted to dig up those guns that I had buried there. They had been there for a few years, and I wanted to check on them, make sure they were they weren't full of water. And uh, so I don't really. I think what ha I think the way it worked is I went fishing for a day, and then I went down and found the guns, um, brought them back up to the motel room, and you know worked on them for a while, getting everything working again, and. Um, then I found that house, and it was exactly what I was looking for, and um, started to think that I would do, you know, like, I would go all out and just do a bunch of stuff. Like, if I, I was kind of thinking, if I'm going to do something here, I'm going to go all out and do a bunch of stuff. So the plan was, I, I was in the hotel that evening, the evening before they were reported missing or whatever. Um, I had all of the guns ready to go, and I had on, actually I think it was that same jacket that you found me with, that rain jacket. And I started walking around town at about eight or nine o'clock after it had got dark. And um, I was looking for someone to carjack, because I already had, so I had my backpack with me, it had a bunch of stuff in it, like cable ties and duct tape and some stuff for like blindfolds or something. And um, went across the went across the road from the hotel and had a apartment complex there staked out. And I was waiting for someone to come in alone. And I was also looking for a someone who was coming in in a decent car that was um, fairly generic because my thought was the next day after I got done with whoever I took, I was going to take their car and I had three banks staked out in different towns starting quite a ways north of Burlington. There's, I think, Highway 15 went up north and did like a loop and there were several towns along that route. So starting up north, I had a bank staked out at the top of the loop. There's, I forget the name of the town. And then there were two more towns in a row right on the way back to Burlington. Both had small banks in them. My plan was to take whoever's car I took up to the furthest north one and hit that and then drive back down Route 15 and hit the other two banks on my way back to Burlington and then dump the car in Burlington and um, just move everything into my car and check out of the hotel and, and leave that day. So, <clears throat> so that's what I was. I was uh, had this apartment staked out. I was actually looking for a guy 
and there was uh it was pouring rain big lightning storm and um there was a guy who came in he was in a, a yellow v-dub bug newer one and um and he's almost he he, he almost got it that night if, if he hadn't got out of the car he'd been about five seconds slower getting out of his car going into the apartment he would have he would have been the one that night but um like i said it was raining so I walked out of this little wooded area and I was walking up behind his car and he kind of, or walking along the line of cars towards his car and he kind of jumped out and he had like a newspaper over his head and he ran into the apartment to keep from getting wet. But yeah, he was, that would have been my first choice, I guess. But I wasn't, I was waiting for the right opportunity. So when that didn't work out, I wasn't that worried about it. I just waited till later. I was just walking around, and I think I went back to the hotel for a little while to wait till after midnight. There was nobody out that night, because it was still raining off and on. And, um, I went out, uh, when the carjacking thing didn't work out, I decided I was going to look for a house with a couple in it, you know, with a car, a decent car. So I was, started walking through neighborhoods back behind the hotel, and... I was looking for a house that didn't look like it had a dog. I was looking for a single car garage with no cars parked outside. And I was looking for a fairly easy way to get into the garage. And theirs was the first house I found that had all those things. Once I got into the garage, the car was unlocked and I looked in, the, checked out the registration. I think I found out that it was registered to a woman, and I think there was something else in the car that had her birth date on it, so I knew about the age of the couple that was there. Did that matter? Yeah, I mean, I was also looking for, I didn't want to go into a house where there were kids, so I was checking for those things in the garage, like anything related to kids, and I checked the back seat of their car to make sure there wasn't dog hair and stuff in it. Yeah, once I found out that it was the right house, and I knew that they were home because I could, uh, I'd walked around the house and they had a, I could hear some fans running in the bedroom. So I, I knew what bedroom they were sleeping in. And uh, they had, their house was locked up really tight. It was, there was no way into the house. I got, um, like even the, the garage door, the door between the house and the garage had a deadbolt. I was able to get the outer door. It had like a screen door. I was able to jimmy the lock on that one, but the the door behind it had a deadbolt. So I knew I was going to have to break the window to get into the house, but I wasn't really worried about that because it was inside the garage. I didn't think anybody would hear. Was there a window between the garage and the house? Or? No. No, it was just uh, the window and the door. To the garage? Right. The, the man door was like between the the house and the garage but it yeah the the garage other than other than the window they had left a window open in the garage there was one window on the side of the house that had a fan in it and I uh, I grabbed one of their chairs in the backyard and took the fan out of the window and just crawled through the window and then once I got into the garage and decided that it was the right house I um the garage had a back door on it too to the backyard and I undid, unlocked the deadbolt on that, kind of staked up, checked out the neighborhood, 
Made sure every... I mean, was checking out all the other houses around there, make sure that there was, uh, wasn't anybody up in the house right next door from the street. It would have been the house on the left. They had a dog that they kept letting out. It was like a big golden retriever or something. And it kept, uh, barking. And there was a guy who kept coming out and smoking cigarettes. So I just kept waiting. I just kept, um... hanging out around their house and and then uh, once it seemed like the that house or that guy had, I don't remember if he left or if he went to bed or what like he wasn't coming out of the house anymore and it seems like they had locked their dog back inside I uh, went back into the garage by then I think it was probably one or two after I found that house and decided that it was probably that it was probably just a couple I think I even had it pegged down just from looking at the outside that it was probably an older couple just because of the way they had their backyard set up. They had like a swimming pool and a deck and a barbecue and it just looked like a, you know, like older couple that didn't have kids kind of house. So I knew there was probably only one room in the house that was being used as the bedroom and uh, I was pretty sure I had found it just from walking around the house. Oh, that room? Yeah, because I heard... Uh, Even though the blinds were closed, I heard fans running in it, and it was hot that night. It was really hot and muggy, and it had been raining. And so I, I already knew, I like in my head, before I even went into the garage, I already had in my head about what the layout of the house was. It was just a ranch house, so it wasn't hard to figure out. And, uh, yeah, but I mean, I knew that they, you know, you always think of that. <laughs> like they, and they did. They had a gun right there in the nightstand. But Which gun was in the nightstand? That one I took. Had it sitting right on top of the nightstand? It was no, it was in a drawer in oh, the nightstand. But it wasn't loaded. <laughs> it wouldn't have done them much good. No, there was no. It wouldn't have mattered because I like once I was actually in the house, I was in, probably in the bedroom with them five or six seconds from the time the glass broke. So where did you break the glass in? The door, the kitchen door between the garage and the kitchen. Were they still asleep when you got to there, or do you think they heard that? They heard it, but they were just barely, I mean, they or were just wondering what it was. Waking up, yeah. So you didn't take, you don't do anything or to prevent them from calling or anything like that, or using the phone or anything like that? Well, I cut the phone lines outside the house. Oh, okay. I cut the phone lines as soon as I picked the house, because usually if there's an alarm system, it'll trigger the alarm. Oh, I see. So you could watch and see. If right. So I, I so cut the phone while. lines, and I and like I said, the neighbor next door, he was still up. He kept coming out and smoking, so I knew I wasn't gonna break in until. Or no, I broke in. I broke into the garage, but I knew I wasn't gonna break into the house until I was sure that the neighbors were asleep. So, so I was in the garage, and I unlocked the back door of the garage so I could come and go, and then I found the phone box on the side of the house, and I. Uh, had my side cutters with me and I cut the wire, the main wire of the phone box and figured if they had any kind of alarm or something, the police would do a drive-by or something. So after I cut that, I was outside for probably an hour or two, just kind of hanging out, out in, mostly in the backyard behind the swimming pool, waiting for everybody in the neighborhood to go to sleep and uh, and also watching for watching the street for cops or cars driving by, but there was never anything. So. so what happened after you entered the house? I know you said you went right back to the bedroom. It took five, six seconds. What, what happened then? Oh, I just I don't know, told them right away what was going on. Were they cooperative at first, at least, both of them? 
Yeah. <laughs> Pretty shocked. <laughs> sure. People never expect <laughs> stuff to happen. <laughs> Do you remember what you told him? Um, I, well, I just, you know, it's like a blitz attack. You just uh, make sure they know right away who's in charge and uh, immediately tie them up, tell them what the rules are, that there's no talking unless I talk to them. They don't move unless I tell them to move. And I did uh, their hands behind their back and had them, you know, pulled everything off the bed and got their hands and their feet together with cable ties and then just started talking and like asking them one question after the other and then I would ask them like the same questions over to see you know like if they were lying yeah like, I remember first thing I asked them was if they had an alarm or if, and if they and if they had a safe and I was pretty sure they hadn't lied about that stuff but you know then I asked them again a few minutes later and then I'd ask him, you know, ask him, like, where the guns are, where the jewelry is, where the cash is, where the cell phones are, where their ATM cards are. So they, they you don't have to tell them, but they, they know they're being robbed. That's what they, that's what they think is happening. They're being robbed. Well, they kept trying to ask me. I didn't tell them what was happening. They kept trying to, trying to ask me what was going on. And, you know, I didn't, I never answered them. You know, it's just, just keep telling them to shut up and, and listen to me. Eventually, they, you know, they just, they're just uh, quiet, and you know, then I kind of, when I was going through the house, checking out the house and checking where everything was and getting everything loaded into suitcases and stuff, they, um, I keep peeking back in the bedroom. I had my headlamp on, but I would look back in the bedroom every once in a while to make sure that they weren't trying anything. Seems like at one time she started trying to roll over or something, and I think I had to, I think I grabbed her, grabbed her by the neck, just to, yeah, I, that's what it was, because they weren't taking me, very, they they weren't taking the situation seriously enough, I guess, and uh, and that was a problem throughout the night that um, that I was having, so, which yeah, it surprised me I, uh, that they didn't take you seriously. Yeah, that they didn't take me seriously. Why do you think that was? Well, I I don't know. 2020 hindsight's probably because they didn't even know that I had a gun. I told them I had a gun, but they could never they never saw me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like anytime I was in the room, there were never any lights on, and so just your headlamp. Right. So I mean, if you look at someone with a headlamp on, you can't tell what they have in their hands. And, uh, sure. Plus, they yeah, they were. I think they were just kind of in awe that it was happening. Like they couldn't believe it, and they kept you know, like wanting. An explanation as to why it was happening. So, but yeah, she she tried. It seemed like yeah, she tried to roll over. She she was yeah, she was talking to him. She was like they were. I could tell they were trying to make a plan and figure out what to do. And I, I like jumped up over on the bed and grabbed her by the neck and shoved her head down into the pillow and just told her I was even when they didn't think I was watching, I might be watching. And, no matter what they tried to do or what they said, it wasn't gonna. It was only gonna piss me off. It wasn't gonna change anything for them. So, so after that, they uh, they stayed quiet for quite a while and didn't didn't do anything. And then the next time I had started having trouble with them was uh, when I got them in the car. So you were only in their house about 15 minutes. Drove straight to the. Uh, 
yeah. else out there in the, in, in the country. And I think you said that uh, getting them in the vehicle uh, was interesting or difficult. There was some difficulty. Yeah, they, well, that's when they started. That was the first time they got a look at me because the dome light came on, I guess, and they were... You know, they were both checking me out, <laughs> like trying to figure out what was going on. I, I mean, I had a mask on, but um, I had a mask in my, the hood of my jacket on. But they would, uh, they were, you know, they started trying to talk to me and stuff. And you try to personalize it. Yeah, yeah. And I was, I mean, I was, I, I would go along with it a little bit because it seemed like it was, like the guy he was, he used to be in the same unit in the army that I was in. 25th Infantry Division or something. Yeah, I found I found one of his insignia patches when I was going through the dresser and I was asking him about it. Anyway, yeah, I was just I was just bullshitting them and they were um, you know they of course wanted to know what why why I was we were leaving in the car. What'd you tell them? No, I just told them it was a it was a kidnap for ransom set up and that there were other people involved in it. So. Did you take the the laundry clothing and stuff to make it look like maybe they had gone on a trip? Is that part of the reason? Well, I was thinking that might... I, I wasn't really thinking... I, I was, that was part of my thinking, but I, I wasn't doing it for that reason, really, because uh, I knew that with the broken window and the cut phone lines, the police would know that it was yeah. pretty unlikely that someone would do that, make it look like they got kidnapped and disappeared. So I, the main reason I took the suitcases was because uh, I only had a small backpack with me and I wanted to keep all of their stuff separate from my stuff. I had a lot of stuff in the backpack that I had with me. So I, yeah, everything I kept, I took from their house, I wanted to keep separate so I could go through it later. And What kind of stuff do you have in your backpack? <laughs> I don't know if I want to go into all that today. So we pretty much went through, you know, I think what happened at the house. Right. And then getting the car and then to the, the house on Route 15. Yeah, there was one thing. Uh, I don't, they probably won't find anything on it, but there was a crowbar that was hanging in their garage. That's what I used to break the, the window on the door to the kitchen. It was a, like a 24-inch crowbar, and uh, it was hanging on a pegboard at the back of the garage, and uh, after I broke the window, I, uh, I think I just dropped it on the floor, and then when we were leaving, I picked up the crowbar and hung it back on the pegboard once I had her in the car. I had her in the front seat, and uh, her hands were behind her back. I had cable ties on them, and I think I had cable ties on her feet, too, and once I had her in, once I had them in there, he was uh, he was kind of overweight and he wasn't in very good health, so I'm not worried about him. But I had his hands uh, cable tied, and then I had a seatbelt on him too. And um, he was he in the back? Yeah, he was in the back on the passenger side. Like I say, they were wondering what was going on. So I I don't know. I, I guess I just I just told them a story that I thought was somewhat believable, so they wouldn't freak out on the way out there. Told them they were t I was taking him to a to a drop house and there were other people that were going to meet us there and uh, they were convinced that I had their own people you know that they didn't I think they thought it was a case of mistaken identity or something they thought that they were because I was asking them about uh, drugs too when I was in the house took all their prescri prescription there was like some Percocets and Vicodin and stuff like that but there weren't there weren't any illegal drugs that I found and 
So I had all that stuff in, in the suitcase, so I think they thought that it was related to something to that. And um, so we were driving out to the house, and, and she started talking about, um, you know, I should, I should start screaming or I should start doing something. And I told her, I said, you're just going to piss me off because there's nobody around to help you. It was like, it was probably about 1 or 2 a.m. at that time. And then I had, I already had my backpack with me. It had, uh, had a bunch of stuff in it. I had, uh, like a propane burner camp stove thing and a pan for boiling water. Had a few, like, water bottles, carry bottles that had, uh, water in them. And had a coil, like a 50-foot coil of, uh, nylon rope. Duct tape. Latex gloves. I guess you'd call it a rape kit. That's what it mostly was. And uh, so I had all that stuff in the bag with me. After I had them in the car, I drove to the hotel where my car was parked. My car was parked off to the side, kind of in a dark area of the parking lot. And I backed their car in right alongside my car. And I hadn't decided for sure at that point what to do with their bodies, so I threw a bunch of stuff out of my car into into their car trunk. I had a shovel, had uh, some diesel, I had a big roll of the 55-gallon trash bags, and the Drano, I threw that in their trunk, and uh, started driving out to the house. There wasn't, it was really late, there wasn't anybody on the roads or anything. Got out to the house and I parked back behind the house there. And she was in the front seat and I thought I had her pretty secure. Yeah, at that point I thought I wasn't really that worried about it. I think I even had the seatbelt cable tied together so that she couldn't just pop the buckle and get out. My plan was to take him into the basement, tie him up separate, and then take her upstairs. There were these two queen-size mattresses in the upstairs corner bedroom and that's where I planned to take her and then him I was gonna leave downstairs uh, for a while but anyway I took him down through the outside basement access and I walked him down there found a it was like an old stool cable tied his hands down to the stool so he couldn't stand up and then like had the stool backed up against the wall and thought I had it pretty well secured and uh, <laughs> well I, I, I mean it must have taken me longer than I thought because I came out of the basement and she was standing right there by the door she had got out of the car or she was in the process of like she she just had thongs on on her feet and she was she had somehow broke the cable ties on her hands and on her feet and got out of the car she was almost to the road when I came out of the basement and she saw me come out and she started running and I tackled her on the lawn and uh, <laughs> roughed her up a little bit and tied her back up and took her upstairs had her uh, lay down on the, I had the mattresses, I think I had already had them set up from the day before when I had the house, I had them thrown down in the middle of the, of the room upstairs. Had her lie down on the mattresses. I gave up on the cable ties. I don't know, it must have been a bad batch or something. They kept breaking and uh, and so I didn't trust them anymore. So I took uh, duct tape 
and made handcuffs out of that and with her hands behind her back. Then once I had her laying down on the bed, I took uh, the nylon rope and ran it under between the mattresses, under the one she was on and on top of the other one, and then uh, did a trucker's hitch and cinched her down to the mattress, then cut off the rope that was left over. She was, she was feisty. She was like fighting the whole time. And uh, so I just kept tightening the rope on the bed. I had it set up so that it was just uh, like a loop. You pull the loop and then tighten the hitch. And I just kept tightening it and I finally told her, like, if you keep struggling, I'm just gonna keep tightening it until you pass out because I think I had it around her neck. After that, she stopped. And uh, I had in my bag, I had some cuffs that I had made out of nylon, one inch nylon webbing. And I put those on her feet, on her ankles, and they had a loop on them. And I took the rope, there was uh, the door to the bedroom was taken off the hinges. The hinge was still there on the door frame and it had a pin in it. And I took uh, one section of rope, tied it to, to the cuff on her left foot and uh, ran it around the pin on that hinge and did another trucker's hitch. And then there was nothing to tie the other one to on the other side of the room. So I ran downstairs and uh, there was like a tool room off the back of the house and there was found a section of pipe about 20 inches long and uh, found some big nails like four inch 20 penny nails and took that upstairs and she was already struggling and trying to get off the bed but she hadn't she hadn't actually got off yet and, uh, and I took the nail and drove it into the window facing the side of the window facing the road there did another trucker's hitch on that side just kept tightening both of them until her legs were like spread eagle and she couldn't move at all really and uh, then I heard uh, I heard some movement downstairs because at that point she was she finally shut up a little bit and uh, and that's when I started having problems with the guy I went down there and he had the stool he was he was kind of a big guy like overweight and the stool had just collapsed and I guess when it collapsed the cable ties that I had on his wrist behind his back they had broke and the stool like, came apart just messed my whole plan up. So I was kind of pissed off about that, and uh, I was like yelling at him, like, why, why are you trying to get away? You're just making it worse. And, and at that point, he was still like trying to talk me out of it. He's like, just let us go. I know you're in too deep, but we haven't really seen you. You can still walk away. <laughs> and I, I just kind of laughed at him. I was like, I can't, you know, I don't know if I actually said anything, but in my head, I was like, you don't even know planning just walk away <laughs> I mean at that point like I say he had just reached a point where he wasn't gonna cooperate no matter what and uh, I didn't have the Ruger 1022 on me I had it it was upstairs in the backpack I had my 40 cal and I had a knife and I didn't want to use the knife on him because like I'm make a big mess and uh so I think I, I just kind of grabbed him by the neck and pushed him up against one of the posts and put the knife to him. And he still, like, he had his hands out, but he still wasn't doing what I said. And, uh, and then I got, started getting pissed. And I just told him, I was like, I have, I have a gun upstairs. If you want to do this the hard way or do it the easy way, it's up to you. 
he didn't really believe me or take me seriously or whatever. So there was a there was a shovel in the basement, and I hit him with that a couple times, and he and he was still trying to wrestle with me and stuff. And I just came to the realization that you know he wasn't going to stop fighting, and uh, and so I knew I was going to have to knock him out or just kill him. But by then, I already had her all set up upstairs, and it was, you know, it's like it was annoying me that I was having to deal with him. And so I went back upstairs. I, I like ran back upstairs, and uh, by then I was all amped up and grabbed my uh, grabbed the 1022 out of the backpack. I didn't want to shoot him with a 40 cal because there was a car, there was a cop car right across the road. I don't know if it was the sheriff's house or if his car was just there. Parked in the driveway or something? Yeah, it was like only, there was a house probably only 100 yards away. I, the 40 cal was loud and I was paranoid about using it. So so I grabbed that and I grabbed the silencer and put that on. And I was only, I was upstairs for maybe 20 or 30 seconds and she was still on the bed. She couldn't move anywhere at that time, but she could tell that things were not going well. I think I was cursing and stuff. And it's like he kept yelling above at the, after the, up after me up the stairs. He was like, where's my wife? What's going on? And, and I was like, I, I told you, you're not going to cooperate. You can do it the hard way. And, uh, and uh, came back downstairs and he was standing at the bottom of the stairs in the basement still. It was like, he, he didn't have any light, but I could tell when I came down the stairs, like he was, uh, he was trying to figure out some way to fight me. He was like feeling around for something to hit me with. And I came back down the stairs and I saw that. So you're still not going to cooperate. And I, uh, I had the gun out in front of me, like pointed from the hip and uh, had my headlamp on. He saw the gun and he started to say something and it just pissed me off and I just started pulling the trigger. He threw his arms up kind of crossed him in front of him, it seems like. And I actually saw, like in my headlamp, I actually saw the bullets hitting him. But it wasn't loud, it was, you couldn't even really, I mean, if someone heard that gun, even if they were in the next room, they probably wouldn't even know it was a gun. I just kept pulling the trigger. I pulled as fast as I could until the magazine was empty. Yeah, he didn't, he, he, he was still standing when the last shot hit him. But I was mostly, I was pissed off after I had to shoot him because I knew <laughs> I was really proud of that gun. I was like, no, I have to throw the barrel away. So I was pissed off about that. But anyway, um, yeah, so after he went down, I checked him out for a couple minutes. I just kind of watched him. He had his eyes closed, so I don't think he was dead. But I, I, I waited long enough to make sure that he wasn't going to get back up or go anywhere. And then I went back upstairs and, and took the gun apart. And I don't think she knew that, um, or I didn't take it apart. I just took the silencer off. I don't think she knew that I had shot him, but um, she knew that something had happened. And after that, she, at first she didn't, um, you know, try anything much, but uh, then once she realized that I was gonna rape her, then she started uh, started fighting again and stuff, so. So, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm gonna go into details of that part, but she came really close to getting away with that. <laughs> she was, she was almost to the road when she, when I found she got out of the car. I couldn't, I couldn't believe that. I almost, after that, I almost wasn't going to use cable ties again because I didn't trust him. She was like, I think she was 50-something, and she was a lot stronger than she looked. I don't think I've ever broke one of those cable ties. <laughs> but, um, yeah, after that, I think when I raped her the second time, I was 
worried about her screaming, so I had a, I made a gag, took a bunch of paper towels and some duct tape, put them in her mouth, and uh, wrapped duct tape around her mouth. And after that, she was uh, she wasn't fighting anymore. I think she knew. I think she knew what was gonna happen. And uh, put all my uh, anything that had touched her, like the cuffs and everything else. I I didn't want to throw them away, but I just decided I better. So I threw all that stuff. I had one of those big bags, and I just after I had, had her tied up, I had cut off all of her clothes that night, and I put all her, you know, everything that had been on her, I put in that bag, and then uh, grabbed the bag, walked her downstairs to the, all the way to the basement. She was sitting on a bench down there, and she was kind of out of it by then. She was when I uh, second time I raped her, I had uh, I had choked her. She passed out for a little while. So she was, yeah, like by the time I walked her downstairs, she was a little bit out of it. I don't know if she really knew what was going on at that point. I had my, <clears throat> had my leather gloves on and I think I took a piece of the rope and stood behind her while she was sitting on that bench and used it like a garret and strangled her. And I knew that she was, I knew that she was gone so I knew, I was pretty sure that she was gone, but then I was, I wanted to be sure she wasn't gonna wake back up or start breathing again. So I took a cable tie and put it around her neck, tightened it down as much as I could, and then uh, left her on the floor. The place where Keys took the couriers, an abandoned farmhouse, was so dilapidated and full of trash, Keys felt he didn't need to put much thought into disposing the bodies. He wrapped both Bill and Lorraine in 50-gallon trash bags, poured Drano inside, and placed their bodies in the corner of the basement. Little did anyone know, but the house was set for demolition. In a short time after the murders, the farmhouse was leveled and hauled to the local landfill. One year later, after Key's admission to their murder, the FBI were at the landfill to try to find their remains. I have no doubt that we're going to find the bodies because we've been very successful at narrowing it down to an area of the dump. And it's not tiny, um, but it's small enough to where we're going to be able to search it successfully. I have no doubt of that. Uh, but it's going to take time for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is some of the safety concerns and stuff like that. I mean, you can't just go in there and start throwing stuff around. you got to wear, wear special stuff because of all the Man. human waste. And yeah, like I said, I really jumped the gun on that one. I had no idea. <laughs> oh, man. What the hell? But like, so looking at that house, I knew there was like a 10% chance that the owner was either going to pay to have it demolished or just throw a match in it. It was that ragged that the house? Uh, well, I knew it. I just knew from what I know about houses, I knew it wasn't something anybody would try to remodel. Did it have a refurbish? for sale sign out in front of it? Was yeah. it for sale actively? Yeah. So apparently there wasn't too many people looking at that house to purchase it after you were there. No. That's why I was curious. I, I'm not surprised, though, that whoever had it listed didn't take pictures of the inside because it was in pretty bad wasn't shape. impressive to No, it wasn't. It actually looks a lot better from the outside. <laughs> <laughs> and so now that the people out there in Vermont are, are, are in the dump and they're looking for the your black uh, bags, <laughs> you know, so... Um, and I think you told us four bags. Are they separate bags, or did you put a bag on the bottom and a bag on the top? Yeah, that's how it was. Separate bags, or a bag on the top, bag on. I mean, were they? 
two bags on each body. Okay. That's okay. I, that, that's what I thought you said. How, how did you secure them? I mean, you just, I don't think they were secured. Just I may have knotted them on top, uh -huh. like knotted the two bags together, but. Okay. The main, I mean, I had main, the main reason I had for putting uh, the bags on was just so that people wouldn't, they would have to actually pull the bag oh, off to see what it was in it. And, uh, and also to hold the, the drain along the bodies. I had some drain that I brought with me. So, so when they're looking for these, if there's any, if the, it, was there dis, did you dismember them? So no. they're looking, so they're, they're, they're intact. So if we find partial, we need to keep looking to find them. Yeah, there should, they're, um, yeah, if they, if, I'm guessing, it sounds like they brought in a big excavator or something. I'm still surprised. Sounds like a really big one. Yeah, it would have had to have been a really big one because, uh, because like I say, the, the bags weren't tied together, so. Seems like it would have been the bodies would have. Although it's only it's been less than a year, so the bodies probably weren't even. You know, they were probably only about halfway to skeletal. So they're you probably even with all the moisture, the bags will trap and stuff. Well, it depends how busy the bugs got, but. Um, and, what, and what you put the Drano in there? Is that what you said? Drano. Yeah. What's that for? Uh, the Drano was an idea I had. Uh, in case they were found right away, I didn't want um, there to be any DNA on the outside of the bodies. Oh, does that? I had heard that um, the lie, the Drano destroys, like scrambles up all the DNA. I don't know. And also, it was I was thinking to keep it like, uh, you know, if you leave it on sock, like if you leave the Drano I was using, I had used it before, and I noticed that. They got splashed on me, and it'll actually burn through your skin if you leave it on there long enough. And uh, so that was the other thought I had that it would start the the decomposition, and they would, you know, break them down a little bit faster, mm -hmm. keep them from bloating and stuff. story israel keys is a is a strange one for me because it's he's not up there with the the big guys you know what i mean like right. he, a lot of people don't know about him he's not like a world famous serial killer by any means and i think i mean he should be up there and i think it's because he didn't confess to all these murders that could have you know what i mean it's all alleged right. yeah. and uh i think if he would have came out and told more of his story i think he would have been known as the as a, oh, yeah. as a top dog you know yeah the, he, there's so many layers to this guy if he admitted to everything that he actually did he wouldn't be like the most prolific, yeah. but he would be the most interesting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because he varies in so many different ways. One of the first things that stand out to me is the man in the VW, like when at the beginning of the story when uh, the man of the VW, uh, the VW bug basically said, hey, if, if that guy, if it wasn't raining so bad or, you know what I mean? The, the yeah. instances, he would have got it. Right, because, five more seconds. Yeah, because yeah. it's, it's terrifying and eerie to think about that, like how many moments in your life how little things can affect the, the outcome. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely terrifying. Um, it was interesting that he kept insinuating that young kids were off limits. I didn't want to, I don't want to go in a house with young kids. Yeah. Young kids. And it all ties back to his daughter. It's there, there was love there for something, yeah. not just himself. Uh, but it seems to me that he's, he's genuine. You know, I'll bring up, uh, you know, like Ted Bundy, you know, Ted Bundy, you know, he had a girlfriend was I, for a long time was great, you know, took care of her daughter, everything like that. You know, he was able to play a role. And 
when everything was said and done, I really didn't love you. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was I, all part it, of the... Right. You know. But with Israel Keys, it actually seems like there's, you know, he didn't care about, you know, his girlfriend or, or what was going to... Many times throughout the story, too, you hear him going to visit family, going right. to, like, it wasn't, like, usually these guys are, are closed off, even even towards family members. They're, <laughs> they're, they're so isolated. Right. He would go and travel and go see family, go visit, like, it's just a different dynamic. The confidence in this guy, too, to be like, oh, I'll break the glass because I'll get there, like, when then the... The investigator asked him, like, oh, wouldn't you be afraid of, like, what if he had a gun? And he's like, no, I, I, I'll i get there and yeah. don't you worry. That is, that's terrifying, right. too. Uh, yeah, the, the confidence was insane. Yeah, not only that, but, like, bringing him to the farmhouse and his allegedly a cop 100 yards away. Yeah, oh, didn't care. Yeah, didn't care. So, yeah, 22 is not loud. It's fucking nuts. Uh, and then, I mean, mm. cutting the phone lines and all that stuff. But he's, like, I mean, obviously you said, like, when you said he, at the end he got lazy. Like, yeah. which most of these guys do. Um, but, like, knowing to cut the phone lines and then uh, it's just weird that he made so many silly mistakes, even though he was so thorough with all of his plans. It's um, Does that go out? Like, you know how some of these guys want to be caught? I, I don't know. Yeah, he, he, like, talks about how, like, he didn't want the notoriety and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But there's some things that he says where he did want it. Yeah, like he picks and chooses. It's right. not because if, if you want an notoriety, he'd confess to everyone. Some of the other guys do. Exactly. Like, you know, like with Deborah Feldman, even though he didn't admit to it, he would look up her name and see if there was like any news. Yep. Like what it and like the with the couriers, he would always check in, like go up on the internet, see where where the investigation was, you know, what what knew. Basically like slapping himself on the back of, of how great of a job he did. You know, he also talks about, you know, the arsons and the robberies. You know, when, when he couldn't commit a murder, arsons and the robberies were kind of like a soothing. You know what I mean? It's like yep. in replacement of the murder. Yep. A change of pace. Yeah. Uh, that poor woman, Lorraine, put up a hell of a fight, too. That's yeah. I think that's the saddest part about the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, the husband dying, too. But, uh, you know, she, she fought. She almost made it out of there. Yeah. It's just sad to, to see. I mean, he even said, for 50, man, I didn't expect her to put up a fight like that. And exactly. It's just a sad story. When he's talking about it, he kind of becomes a little reluctant, a little withdrawn when he's actually talking about the rapes. You know, he says, "Oh yeah, he doesn't." I don't know if I want to talk about all that, but you hear little snippets about what she possibly could have gone through. You know, like when he says, "When I raped her a second time, I choked her out." Yeah. So when he brought her downstairs, she was still kind of groggy. You know, what I mean, it's like, oh yeah, she de- a little groggy from choking out doesn't happen. She probably yeah. was very much abused right. at that point. Out of it, trauma, uh, abuse. Oh yeah, he had to have hit her a couple times, something like that. You don't right. just you don't just get groggy and completely out of it. it was like almost like embarrassed that he yeah or didn't want to make himself self sound as bad as he actually was. Yeah, but you bring up a good you bring up a good point that what he doesn't say leaves a lot to the imagination. He probably like sodomized her, rape, you know, horrible. did so many horrible things to her, but he 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 won't admit it. Yeah, he's embarrassed. Right. Which is weird too, because it's not the MO of usually they're proud of that. that yeah. That's what they get off on. Yeah, so he he's definitely unique. He's a unique individual. But yeah, I mean like so after he left the the couriers, he went up to Maine to visit some family. So it it, it just goes to show that like he uses these trips, you know, that have a destination. But uh, he plans it long enough so he can do other things. You know what I mean? So he lands in uh, Chicago before he makes his trip. Lands in Chicago, drives from Chicago to Essex. Uh, reportedly, his mother lives in Indiana. He drove to Indiana to visit the mother. And apparently there's this a, a woman that went uh, missing while he was in that area. So they're looking into that one as well. 
Um, drove to Essex, picked up his uh, uh, kill kit. And, you know, like we talked about before, he, he doesn't really have a specific person. You know what I mean? So he goes, sees that guy in the parking lot. Yep. Was going to do that. Eh, didn't yeah. work out. All right, let me go find somebody else. I don't know who they are. I don't know what they look like. I don't know anything about them. But I'm just going to go and fucking kill them. Yep. You know? But yeah, so that's uh, Israel Keys. Uh, if you guys all enjoy that, remember to uh, check us out on Twitter, TikTok, YouTube. Leave us a voice message on Anchor. Uh, just let us know what you guys think about it. And don't forget to leave ratings on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. And again, we are now on Audible. We can leave a rating there as well. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. See you guys next time.